Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today we're going to be talking about establishing quality hierarchies without official government classifications. And our guests today are from the VDP. Teresa Okus, Managing Director of the VDP, and Stefan Christman, the President of the VDP and Proprietor of Weingut A. Christman. Welcome to the show. Hello. Happy to be with you. see you. I was hoping uh, we can start, maybe we can start with you. Teresa, could you give me and Peter a brief overview of your background and why we're talking today? Yeah, for sure. Grew up with wine in the northern part of Württemberg. It's a pretty Franconian-styled region, you could say. Both my parents brought vineyards into the family, so they don't have an estate themselves or a winery, but they delivered or still deliver their grapes to a cooperative back home. So, yeah, it's part of me since 30 years now, you could say. I studied something else. I studied communication science and media research in Stuttgart. Been to wine public publications, you could say. And also I was working in a Michelin star restaurant that was on my campus and I was responsible for wine. But yeah, all of those steps made me apply at the VDP. I saw that they are looking for a communication manager. So I thought, maybe I apply. I might learn a bit at that association. And now I'm working at the VDP since three and a half years took over the job as a general manager from Hilke, my colleague. She's doing it for 30 years now. And now since one and a half years, I'm yeah, in charge of the many tasks that the VDP is on. Well, uh, Michelin Star Restaurant on your campus at your university, that's, uh, that's impressive. Yeah, <laughs> it used to be the canteen when they uh, did not have a star so far, but yeah, for me, it was the first time I experienced wine cellars like that because I did not know it like this from, from home. Awesome. And Stefan, could you give a brief introduction of your role at the VDP as well as for your winery? Absolutely. So I'm here a crower in Gimmeldingen at the Mittelhardt in Pfalz. And my family is growing wine here since the late Middle Ages. The winery, like it is today, was founded in 1798, and today I do it together with my daughter, Sophie. I took over the estate from my parents in 1996, but they were still working with me a long time. So it's really a family winery, like we think about. But at the beginning, when I finished school, I was not so really sure that I wanted to do it. And so I studied first the law, and sometimes in my job as VDP president, it helps. So VDP, I took over the the presidency in 2007. So it's also a long time. So I'm the, I think I'm the seventh president in 110 years. So it's not a, not a job you do for two or three years. Mostly it's a, it's a long-term decision, but, um, and in my time, Lots of these things we will talk later about, about classification of wines and how does that work together with the wine law or not, is a very important topic. We have a board with something, I would say, 12 to 15 growers from all over Germany. And there are four vice presidents helping me on that job. But most of the things or a lot of things are done by Teresa and me. So maybe for our listeners who 
don't know what the VDP is. Could maybe Teresa, you could tell us what does the VDP stand for in terms of a word and how would we translate that into English? <laughs> so I first give you the word in German, uh, which is Verband Deutscher Pedikatswein Goethe. That's what the three letters are for, the VDP. Most people know it from the logo, from the brand itself, from the eagle on the capsule or on, on the bottle. So that would, would unite, uh, you could say, all the members. We are 201 right now. That's uh, a number that, that is changing. For example, if you look back to 1990, we've been, I think, 160 members. Since then, there are, I think... 130 that are new to the association and 90 that stepped out or there was a farewell, you could say, that shows how dynamic the number is. And now since three and a half years that I'm with the VDP, you could say each year we have one until two new members and we lose one or, or two members. So it's pretty dynamic. The number itself is nearly equal over the last years, I'd say, but of course we have yeah strict criteria that that needs to be fulfilled, and also there's an audit every five years that you have to pass. So they're all individual. We can really say from the Ah Valley in the northern part with beautiful Pinots to the southern part of Germany with Baden. And from Saar to the eastern parts like Saxonia and Salo und Struth. So we have 10 regional associations. And as I said, they're all individual. There are newcomers and really traditional wineries. But for me, that's what the P stands for, for quality and for really individual people that all have the same aim to produce fine wine and top wines from, from really top vineyards. So in terms of why the VDP got started, Stefan, you've been with the VDP for a long time. Could you provide a bit of history and how it got started in the first place? So it, the, the group was started in the, in the end of the 19th century in regional boards or regional associations. And so somehow the idea is really timeless. At that time was also a big movement of more industrial kind of winemaking. And on the other hand, it was individual farmers winemaking and both were in competition and more and more the cheap kind of Today, we think much more about industrial style with big machines. At that time, they added water and other fruits and things like that to make a wine cheaper and easier. And so a group of very important growers thought we have to join together to work against that. And also a second point was that at that time, most of the wine was sold in auctions and it was not sold in bottles it was sold in barrels and it was sent over the river rhine for example to cologne or to even to to the netherlands and there it was bottled and the wineries lost a bit of control what was bottled so it was also a point that they joined together, that they had the rule that they don't sell any wine which is not bottled anymore in the estate with the original branding on the cork. 
And um, that was much easier to bring in the market to get the acceptance by the wine merchants in all over the world when all German top growers did it in the same way. So it was kind of a almost like a guild control quality, yes. is that right? Yes. And, and has that goal changed over time? So it was long time. The idea was, is for sure, it came World War One and World War Two, which were big interruptions or big cuts in the history of German wine. But most of the things were quite stable till the 50s, 60s. And then in Germany, it came more and more in fashion to have cheap, sweet wines on one hand. And maybe it was also, so we shouldn't say too bad things about our ancestors, but the people had other sorrows and they wanted, after the war, they just wanted to have something to drink maybe. And so quality was not anymore as in the focus. And all that was really the peak of the discussions and the problem was the, the, the wine law of 71 and the discussions which were in front of that. And, uh, and the people saw thought that it should be more on brands and less on vineyards and less on origins in that time. And it was brought nearly the VTP to an end, but some of the members were sure that that couldn't be the end of that glorious history. And so then they restarted the VTP in the end of the 70s, early 80s. It was never really interrupted. It still existed, but it, it was somehow in a sleep. And did the group of guidelines that the association had, did that change over time? Because you had mentioned a state-bottled branded cork. Did those change over that duration of that history? So all these things were still all times very important. Another point was what we call in Germany Naturwein at that time. It's uh, different to that what we what we talk today about natural wines. But it's a, it's a bit the same. The only big difference is that there is a use of sulfur. But if you go to the beginning of the time, there were the idea of no additives at all besides sulfur, especially no sugar to put the alcohol on a, on a higher level. And all that was all time in fashion in the VDP and it was all time important. But starting in the maybe 80s, early 90s, more and more, again, the vineyards were important. And if you look at the VDP, like Teresa explained what we are, what is also typical for a VDP estate is that the estate's own nearly the very best vineyards in Germany. And for sure, that is a very important topic. And that brought the big movement of classification and all these things. We'll talk later about that on the move. So I, I get the grassroots starting of the VDP, but I'm curious as, as it became more popular in, in quality over the various times, I'm, I'm curious on why a VDP stayed independent versus kind of merging in or becoming the de facto standard of Germany from a government perspective? Why did the government not just take over the VDP as its kind of like Pradikat style guidelines? Maybe it's a, it's a two strength rule or legislation we have in our association. You can't do something like that for a whole wine growing country. 
there is everywhere in the world and also in Germany a demand for a more easy kind of wine. And uh, we we have very low yields. We do lots of handwork and a government could never do it in that way. And more and more in Europe and also in Germany, which is for us still new, it's moving in the responsibility of the growers. And the growers have to decide what they want to do. And this is the process maybe of the last eight to six, eight years. This is more and more overruling the government's decisions, but it's still new for us in Germany. It's more common in Italy and France, but it's also coming to us. And uh, But at the end, we will never... It will never be possible that 100% of German wine could be produced in the level we do. But I guess, yeah, for France and Italy, they have the different levels within their government organization, right? Like uh, AOC versus... Yes. Vin- but this is also coming to Germany more and more. So for sure, if you look at Germany in the moment, it's 95% of the wine is bottled as a in the highest level, what we call Geschützturspunktsbezeichnung, which is the, the same like uh, Appellation d'Origine in France. And we don't sell so much wine in Germany as Vin de Pay or um, normal German wine, basic German wine. But there are really big discussions about that. And in our thoughts, this should be even much more important. So there is no need for a basic wine that it is declared on all top levels with other wines. So it, those people who want to buy a bottle of wine for three, four, five euros, they just want to have an easy drinking wine, which is showing every year in the same way. And it's a totally different idea of wine growing or wine producing. Teresa, you mentioned a little bit of how the VDP is operated with its regional organizations and then the central and that wineries are coming in and out. Who's allowed to join the VDP? Like, what are the regulations to admit someone in? I'd say as long as they fulfill the criteria, actually, every winery could join. But important to know is that you can't apply or you can't buy the membership. So you need to be asked by the region. So if you, Peter, would own a winery in Nackenheim close to Mainz and you're really successful and you have the same quality idea and spirit that we have and you're working in those vineyards that Stefan mentioned, the top vineyards and have a terroir-driven idea to really express it in the class, then your regional colleagues from Rheinhessen would maybe buy some wine and uh, blind taste it with all the other wines within the regional association or the VDP. Then if everything fits together, you would be asked whether you would like to join and that's the process. And then of course the winery gets tested and people have a look at the vineyards and into the cellar and your idea of quality and so on. Yeah, so... Like a secret book club, you can't uh, just enter. You need to be asked. But for me, always it's important that you do not only see black and white, VDP and non-VDP. I think Steffen would agree when I say that we're on the same page that others are that are that want to achieve the same aims that we want. It's not against anyone, but what we want is to be maybe also like a role model for others 
to go the same or look at this into the same direction that we do. For example, with the sustainability decision that we made one and a half years ago or maybe two years ago already, that every winery needs to be certified sustainable until 2025. We even are making big steps or milestones, as we call it, that the members use lighter bottles for their state wines that make up 63% of their production. At the same time, for example, we right now introduced lighter GG bottle. You might have seen the GG bottle with the relief on the bottle. That's also one thing we're doing. So I'd really say that the VDP always was and still is like a pioneer and that is setting up standards for others also to follow. So if, if I'm a winery and I get invited, what are the benefits? Why, why would I want to join? Good colleagues, a good uh, knowledge that everyone is sharing. But also, I mean, you're part of the brand and the Eagle is known, I mean, also internationally, but also on the domestic market, I'd say it's a definite sign for quality. And People know if they choose a wine with the VDP Eagle on the capsule, they know it's good quality and they can trust on yeah, handcrafted wines that are the opposite of a uniform industrial wine. And also, I'd say it's you have access to the yeah, most known and also really good events that the VDP is doing. So he's really giving a platform for it. It's members for people from the trade, from publications, really multiplicators, people who have a voice in our wine world. So you get really good access to them. Also, I think it's interesting for your export market. The VDP is really strong in exporting. Every fourth bottle is drunk abroad, we know. So 27% is exported from the VDP wines. And also it gives you a platform in communication and marketing questions. So I'd say the VDP really has a high influence. Yeah, you really gain from this experience and from the voice it has into the world of wine. Mm, but I, but Stefan well, is a member. Maybe he can tell uh, better. <laughs> also, I would, would say, so ask me a lot of times, why doesn't that what we are exist in other wine countries. There is no country of the world where is a national, national wide association of top growers. And maybe it's also part of that what we talked about 71 and all the dark part of the history of German wine that we all know or knew that we only could make it together. So maybe there was much more pressure on the wineries like you have it in Burgundy, Bordeaux, or at the Loire, or in Piemonte, where in the last 50, 100 years, there was a really no really bad time. But for German top wine, there was a bad time. If you look 100 years back, uh, before World War I, German wine was on the finest tables in the world, everywhere, in the top hotels, at the courts of the kings and emperors, and Everyone wanted to have German wine. So we knew that we have to join together to make that coming back. And I think this is also 
we are not so much competitors. We feel more like partners bringing the German wine back on the old position. I think for most of the growers, to join the VDP a much more important point than all these other points, which are for sure important and which helps the wineries to, to move in the right direction. But this is very important too. So then the flip side of that question, you mentioned some people leave the VDP every year. Why, why would people want to leave? Most of them are not really free in decision, but sometimes I say, so if you are a football team, and you have your local audience, they think you are the best team on the planet. But if you are allowed to play together with the top teams of country, maybe it doesn't look anymore as good as it looked when you are just playing with your neighbor village or something like that. And so if the membership doesn't help you, if your quality is not anymore on the top level. And there is, um, for sure, there's some pressure from the VDP, but we changed that maybe 10, 15 years ago, away just from controls to kind of coaching. But um, most of the problems happen by passing the winery from one generation to the next. It's mostly not that if you are 50 or 60, that you are getting worse. It's more if you take it over and you don't have the right talent or the right passion, you can't do it anymore in that way. And then it's a combination out of the pressure of the VDP kind of coaching. You should be better. I should do better work in the vineyard. And on the other hand, the people see that they don't really have a big advantage to be member if their quality is not showing in the way that it's competitive to the other growers. And so most of them, we had only once we had to go to a court to kick someone out. In all other cases, the people moved away in good. If we meet again, sir, there is no problem. So the people found another way for them to go ahead with their wineries. At the same time, the VDP being in a development all the time, making decisions, going one step further. I mean, you also have to decide if you can step that way further with the VDP. Maybe the VDP is taking some decisions that you can't fulfill in the future or you maybe also don't want to fulfill. For example, we once decided to only have the predicate wines on the natural sweet side, not not try anymore. It was a decision, Stefan, maybe 10 or 15 years ago. If you still want to produce, I don't know, Kabinett Token, Spätwese Token and so on, maybe it's also a reason that you say, okay, all the other 100 and I don't know how many members are going that step Maybe I don't want to. You also have to be a social person. And this is also a point. If you would do, Peter, the best wines of Nackenheim and you are not a person for a group, then you wouldn't be the right person moving in the VDP. Your wines are fine, but we only want to have people who could do compromises and look to the next. And only individualism is not the only thing which could work good in such an association. So switching gears, the, the German wine law of 1971 changed how German wine was classified and labeled. 
I'm wondering if you could give us a brief overview of that law and how that impacted the VDP organization. So the, when we talk about Wine Law 71, it was two main topics. One was that uh, as higher the most weight, as sweeter the most, as better the quality is. And uh, the second point was that they, in Germany, we say, Qualität im Glas, so the quality in the in the glass you could taste, and they thought if they taste very strict, they would select the best wines in the higher in the higher classes. But then other wine varieties, not the only the traditional ones, moved into the system, got easily high most weights and sugar, but not really better wines, and so at the end the whole system collapsed. And um, at the end, it's quite a clear system, but it's very complicated because you could combine everything. You have on one hand, you have the combination of the varieties, then you have the origins with the village names, the site names or the areas. And then you have the sweetness levels and then you have cabinet spätlese auslese. You could also do in different sweetness levels. And so... For sure, if you are really specialist in German wine, the old system was was somehow good to understand what you get, but you have to be really a perfect specialist. But on the other hand, what was not so, in our opinion, good is that the system thought you could do everything everywhere. And we think that there are certain places which show with a combination of one variety, maybe two in maximum, and one sweetness level in the best way. For sure, it's also a very important tradition to do predicate wines in the classical style, sweet, cabinet, spätlese, auslese. But on the other hand, the tri style became more and more important. But this was also really the traditional style of Germany before 1900. So uh, before 1900, there were for sure the Botrytis sweet wines, but nearly all other wines were dry. So it's somehow the way back to the old situation that we saw that 71 wine system doesn't work anymore. And also sweetness, even with Riesling or with Pinot Noir, in times of climate change, you reach easily every year the high quality of sweetness of the most. And um, when I started in the winery, maybe as a child, even more, there was a difference maybe of two or three percent alcohol between the entry level wines and the best wines we picked at the end of the picking season. Today, there is in our winery, there is no difference between the entry-level wines and the high-end wines. So the sugar level of the most is the same. The only difference is the yields and the quality of the site. So I have read in a few places that German wine fell out of favor globally after the 71 wine law. Why do you think that was the case? Was it confusion around labeling or what wines were or was it something else? So I'm quite sure that it was confusion about labeling because nobody knows what word on the label he should think about when he wants to buy something which tastes 
somehow the same he had last night, which he found was wonderful. And if he had a trockene spätlese from Riesling and next day he picks a wine under the same region with the same village or a site's name uh, with a Scheurebe sweet, then he is totally confused and he maybe never will buy it again. So Romantic systems like Chianti Classico or Sancerre makes it much easier for the people that they find a wine which they really like. Second point, maybe also the quality in, in total dropped down. So the yields were too high, much too high. And so finally, there were a lot of not so good wines in the market. And the combination out of both maybe kicked German wine out of a lot of markets. But it's, I would say it's now 30 years that it, German wine is really coming back. It's not anymore in a niche. It's more and more among the best wines of the world. And in 2002, a new classification of dry wines, the Grosso system, was launched, the GG wines. Why was it launched and how is it different from what was done before? Teresa, or should I answer? <laughs> <laughs> you, you were part of that of way. the story, um, yeah. <laughs> I can tell what we celebrated last year and it was special because for me, it wasn't that clear how much the GG influenced that development in Germany. Because I'd say what we were uh, speaking about just a few minutes ago, I'd say, of course, for us within the VDP, the orientation and the classification is really clear. But for the German wine in total, I still find myself explaining my friends why there are still site names on every bottle they can see. And it's not about quality at the same time. So that really is changing right now being the wine law renewed since now two, three years, and we're still in that process. But 2002 was a turning point, and now Stefan can take over. So the, st the story started in, I would say, in the early 90s, 92, 93, 94. And there were guys like Bernhard Breuer, for example, he was a very important person from Rüdesheim. But also a lot of young growers like me moved in their family wine race. We know all that we have really fantastic history, but we were the people delivering the cheapest wine in the world. And at the end, that was also for me. In the, I would never have taken over the winery doing the business of the 70s or 80s. We wanted to come back to these glorious times. And we knew that what was glorious at that time, that were the single vineyard wines from Saar, Mosel, Rhein and Neckar. And so at the end, that was the whole idea. How could we move these great, great sites in the focus of the audience. And that was the idea of the mid of the 90s. And it started on the Rhine River in Rheingau, Rheinhessen and Pfalz with that Großes Gewächs. But at the beginning, we thought that there should be a Großes Gewächs in sweet style from Mosel, because we thought Großes Gewächs should be the same like Concru. But then we saw that it's maybe also too confusing. If you have a special sweetness style from every Grand Cru in Germany, then it's even 
also confusing. If you look at the Loire, for me, I'm a fan of Loire wines, of Chenin wines, but you really have to know which, which of them is sweet or which of them is dry. And it's sometimes it's even not on the label. It's just the appellations should say to you it's sweet. So if we would have done it in that way that a Velenaisonnur is every time sweet and Edik from Königsbach is every time dry, that would be also a nice idea. But I think you have to know 500 different vineyard names in Germany and to know if they're sweet or not. And so finally, we moved in the direction that we have on one hand, the classification of the site. And there we are talking about village wines, Ortswein or Erstelage, first site, or Großelage, which means great site. And on the other hand, we have the classification of the sweetness levels of the wines. And there is Erstes and Großes Gewächs in the dry variation. And there are Cabinet Spätleser, Ausleser, which also could come from Erstelage or Großelage on the sweet side. And this is more and more common, not only for the VDP, more and more German growers, a lot of the younger growers, joining the system, even if they are not members. And what Teresa mentioned, there's now really a strong process in the German wine growing scene in total. I don't like the word wine industry because most of them are not wine industry. To talk about how could we move in total in that system. And we talked about that before, that we have now also the idea that the growers should decide which is it for what is their origin standing for. But this is a very complicated process because there are so many ideas and so many different cultures of wineries, but it's moving. It's moving slow, but it's moving. And why was 2002 the right time to to make this change? So 2002 was uh, the year when it was implemented in all areas. So we in FALS, we did it in the VDP in 1996, so six years before. And in 2000, and Rheingau was even two years, I think they were the first in 94 or 95. And in 2002, all the other areas were convinced that they also should move in that direction. And so the National Association of VDP decided to establish that. So it's, a, it's not a one day everything changed. It was a really long process starting maybe in 1992. And it's still not finished. In 2002, we implemented the Krosesgewächs. In the last years, we are more and more working on the Asterlager and the Astersgewächs. So all should be on these different levels and one by the next. So not too much on one day. <laughs> so I guess maybe even back to the late 90s to early 2000s, what was the initial response from the wine marketplace and wine buyers? So it's a, it's very different. So in Germany, it was from the beginning on, it was a very good acceptance of that, what we did. So German wine drinkers became more and more proud about their own wines, which is also very important that you are proud about your own wines in your country and not only about wines from other countries. Um, in the English world, 
it was maybe the most complicated because especially from the UK, there were people like Hugh Johnson and Janice Robinson and Michael Broadbent, which at that time didn't think about dry wine in Germany at all. They loved the transparency of a great bait laser, but um, they thought German wine, if it's dry, then it's sour. And um, so this is not the right thing to concentrate on. But we first, maybe the movement came to countries like Spain or Italy or especially Scandinavia. Scandinavia is maybe a hotspot for the, for the movement of German wine. And the US was much more easy to move in than the UK. The UK is maybe the last market which joined that process. I feel in my winery that there is a change now four or five years or six years that also the UK is open for that new style. But till that time, till really the mid of the 2010s, the UK was still only sweet or entry-level Milch stuff and nothing else. But now also the UK is very open and um, it's, a, it's a crazy development of the last years. And so from the flip side, was there any challenges with VDP members around implementing the system? Absolutely. There were also lots of VDP members which... We're still convinced by the old systems. We are unsure if they change something, if they take something away, like the Großlager, which is a very complicated thing to that you don't mix it up with Großlager. Good luck. This is now in the last years. It's going away, I think, in 26. There were so many things that people were used to do. And it's every time, so wine growers are very conservative people. They are not sometimes not so open to, to for changes. But um, now, after maybe I would say 20, 25 years, if we ask Teresa, I would say there is none who is not convinced about the system. So after 20 years of the GG symbol, you know, being an icon of quality, Looking back, what were some of the elements of the GG system that led to it being so successful? From my perspective, one really important milestone was that the wineries concentrated on really only one dry wine from a Großelage site. So that people know if you see a Moorstein, for example, when it's not Cabinet Spätlis or anything, but I think there aren't that many, you know it is the one dry wine from that site and also the only dry wine from that site. So those site names really became like brands. And also, of course, the GG. When you look back, I just had facts and figures from the price development of the GGs during the last 20 years. And in 2002, also when the euro started, GG was 16 euros Today, or 20 years later, it's 40 euros. And that's also still the average price. We have TGs from 25 euro until 150 and more, I think. Stefan, so they really, they have their market. They became a brand. People had orientation. They knew when they see a GG on the bottle that it's a dry wine from a really special historic top site and the top vineyard from Germany. And yeah, I think that one dry wine from one site was a big milestone. 
Yeah, it makes the things much clearer for the consumers that they don't have a cabinet and uh, faster ungeheuer Riesling cabinet trocken, faster ungeheuer spätlese trocken, faster ungeheuer auslese trocken and all together. So it's the concentration, but it's also, also the wines have become better in the last 20, 25 years, I would say. It's even more reduction of yield on, on a perfect measure. It's a more sustainable vineyard work. It's more handwork. It's a lot of topics which made the wines much better than they were in 2002. Maybe you, Johnson and Chances, were not so wrong that there were no, not so many really concentrated, balanced dry wines in Germany in the 90s than they are today. And so it's not only the branding, it's not only the regulation, it's also, I think, that we learned a lot about our own vineyards, rediscovered that, which was nearly forgotten or covered by, by something which like a big frog or uh, that you really don't see anymore the style or the, the idea or the personality of the vineyard. And we, show now much more that special style of an area or even of a site. And that together with a clear branding made wines, these GG wines, but not only the GG wines, I think also the, the top sweet wines of Germany are much more, have a much higher appreciation by the people than they had in the time, in that time in the 2000s. Even if we think about this is the glorious time of the sweet wines, it wasn't anymore the glorious time of the sweet wines, I would say. And so for which markets is that GG symbol the most important? In the past, it was very important in Europe, especially in Northern Europe. But in the moment, I would say it's even more important in Asia because it's Europe and also the US, I would say most of the consumers of top wines, which are interested in that kind of Riesling or Pinot Noir, Spätburgunder, they don't need anymore the logo as much as the people in Asia, which are more the beginners with German wine. So I would say the most traditional European markets, they are they are now, they have a much clearer idea of German wine and they don't need anymore so much the easy orientation. But the Asians, they still need it because they are more at the start. Is that true across Asia or is it more China versus Japan or Korea? It started in, in China, I would say, but now is it also in, in South Korea, it's in Thailand, it's in Singapore, it's I would say it's across Asia. So in the moment, it's still, I would say, nearly nothing is happening in, in India or and in Africa or other parts of the world. Also, South America is also not so strong for German wine in the moment. But Northern America, Europe, Asia, Australia, they are very all very strong markets, even Australia. Is that GG marker and symbol where the value is or is being a member of the VDP also, and I'm sure they both have value, but like from a market perspective, what do people resonate with more as a, as a buyer of these wines? 
it depends. <laughs> Interesting, yeah. yeah. I think there are some wineries, member of the VDP, for sure their, their own brand and their vineyards are much more important for the buyers than the logo. I think it's more kind of first orientation. If you dig very deep into German wine, then you don't really need it as much anymore. But I think this is every classifications. Classifications are made for people which are entering a world of wine. They are not made for the specialists, even though maybe something what they think is better than what is classified highest or something like that. For them, it's not anymore the topic. It's for the entry, for the entries in that new system. Yeah, and for sure, people get to know the VDP via maybe also the basic levels. And then they, how to say, drink themselves a step further and maybe end up at uh, Premier Cruise and Grand Cruise, so Erstes Gewächs and Großes Gewächs. But in the fine wine market, for sure, the GD is uh, a brand that is followed. And I mean, look at the presentation that we will have in the end of August when we have the big tasting in Wiesbaden where both of you, by the way, are invited for next year <laughs> to really have the possibility to taste all the wines from one side, side by side, and to really get an idea of the characteristic style of a vineyard. And yeah, we are doing this since many, many years. And I think it's one of the most interesting tastings because you have for three days really the possibility to, to taste those wines and they really are sought after and renowned today, I'd say. Looking back at the 20 years of the GG system, I'm curious on what impact that has had on the other wine producers in Germany that are not in the VDP membership. What impact has it had caused them? What, what has it changed in terms of the style of wines that are being produced by non-members? I think in the for sure we have something which is happening maybe all over the world, that we still have that what it was at the beginning of VDP, it may be even more forced that we have that industrial wine style. This is more and more important all over the world. But there is also a second very strong movement. This is the individual authentic wine growers wine and most of those growers working in that direction are also orientating what they are doing on what we did so we feel very often being a peer group going ahead and also inviting all other growers of germany following us and this is now the discussion moving our classification system into law which seems If it works, it would be the best. But this is, again, a very complicated time. We are in the moment in to discuss that and to find regulations which really filter the best wines. Because it's it seems easy to write something down and then taste them. It's not so easy. And so this is... But there are really a lot of young growers in Germany. And even today, they are not anymore as young. But... There is a really a big movement in Germany for quality. And it had really, I would say, a very, very important impact in the whole German wine scene. And you mentioned that there was the golden age of sweet wines. Has the GG system focused on dry made the Pradekat system more relevant for German wine? 
And this is still and was all time very relevant for us. But there is a, there is a, in Germany, dry wine was all time important. It was maybe even more the idea of an international perspective that German wine is sweet. Maybe because there were, were not so much German wines exported, which were dry. And because German wine lovers don't drink much more sweet wine than wine lovers all over the world. And so we have maybe a kind of overproduction of sweet wine for the domestic market. And that was maybe the reason why German wine was much more German wine in the sweet style was exported than in the dry style. And I think they are really like two sisters living together and showing the different kind of, of the same family. And for sure, they are connected on one point and the style is not so different, but they are different and both are important for Germany. So this will be also very important for the future, I'm sure. Or for sure, not in every area. I think in Baden or Franconia and even in Pfalz, sweet wine is not a very important topic. But if you maybe go to Rheinhessen, Nahe and Rheingau, sweet and dry, both is very important. And if you go to Mosul, maybe sweet is more important than dry. But also on the Mosul, with the, the situation we have today with climate and the reduction of yields, you could do really great dry wines too. And so at the end... It's showing like in, in Bordeaux, like at the Loire, you could do very different expressions of the same area, of the same kind of terroir. And that makes German wine so interesting. And for VDP producers, do most of them make sweet and dry wines or is it just depending on the region? Yeah, I would say it's depending on the region. I would say uh, about maybe 70 or 60% of the producers don't do any sweet wine. And it's for sure all Mosul growers do sweet wines, most of the Naha, but even in Rheingau, it's maybe only 20 or 30% really doing a lot of sweet wine. So it's depending where it is really great. And this is the most important thing that we don't do things which we are, we are not showing in the best way. So terroir should, or the vineyard should be represented by a way which is the best expression of it. And when you look at the export markets for the sweet wines versus the dry and the GG wines, are there different markets that prefer each type of wine? Or do the, most of those markets buy both? I think most of them buy both. Maybe not Scandinavia is not so a good market for sweet, I would say. But if you, for example, countries like Italy, we or Spain, we never have thought that that could be export markets for our wines, but they are very open for the sweet style, but also for the dry style. And I think both kinds of wines are perfect food wines and you need it for different kinds of food. And so it um, works very well in every country. We, by the way, for listeners who are really interested to have a deep dive into the history of the Coast Quebecs and the last years of classification and what the VDP's history is, we reproduced some really nice pictures in the film last year for the anniversary. It's on YouTube at the channel of the VDP, and it gives a really good insight also with, with voices of the presidents during that time, Steffen and Prince Michael but also Hugh Johnson and Francis Robinson, how their view was on Germany. Yeah, we can really recommend it. 
Yeah, I think I watched it to prepare for this. I think it was uh, 20 minutes or <laughs> really so, good. so not super long, but not not super short. But our questions were maybe uh, developed with some of that <laughs> insight. And good. <laughs> so with 20 years of history now on, with the GG system, how do the VDP members tie back to the history of German wines and their ability to age? So, I mean, historically, we've always talked about the sweet wines are able to age because of their, their sugar and their acid. How do the VDP members think about the ability for the GD wines to age? They age very well. <laughs> so. Yes, I think they think, oh, I should have put more into my own cellar from earlier vintages. Because <laughs> when we ask our members if we can have older vintages, they not often have that many bottles left. Yeah, and, and these ones from the early beginning, from 1996 or 1998, if you have the possibility to drink something like that, it's still fantastic. And I'm really sure that wines of today, they will be even better. So as a passionate winemaker you or grower, you want to be better every year. And maybe you are not every year better, but on the long term, you do a lot of things which are much more intense, much more accurate. And today, the wines we bottle, they are even better than they were in the 90s. So 30, 40 years for a dry wine from Germany is no problem. So for sure, a sweet one maybe ages much better. But I think this is for nearly all dry wines. If you look to a Burgundy White, for sure, they are also nice, but maybe the best time to drink it is after 15 to 25 years and not after 50 or 100 years. So if, you, if the dry wine is 100 years old, it's more kind of a bit of curiosity. And it's not, I know none of them which are best after 100 years. And maybe they also became kind of more how to say self-confident also with other great varieties that it's not only Riesling, of yeah, course, sure. a lot of Riesling, but also Pinots. So, or, especially Pinot I mean, Noir. This is, this is a really big story of the last years. And so this is really a revolution. When we talk about revolution of, of German wine in total, then there was a big revolution with Riesling in the, in the nineties and the two thousands. But, if you look the last five to 10 years, so Pinot Noir from Germany, Spätburgunder, it's everywhere. Maybe Burgundy makes it easy for us because it's not only expensive, it's, it's also so, so limited that you are happy to find a good Pinot Noir from another place. And, and so this is, this is also really a success story. And um, Pinot Whites like Chardonnay or Pinot Blanc or Pinot Gris, they will also be more and more in, in the world. And, and also Silvanas, they are really fantastic wines from Silvana. Yeah, Silvana and Limberger. It shows yes, that Limberger. when region is profiled, yeah, really important for Wittenberger <laughs> <laughs> grown one. But no, it shows that when if a region is focused on a on a profile like Franconia with Silvana is doing or Württemberg with Lemberger is doing, it also gives them better idea from a worldwide view on those regions. Awesome. So what are the next priorities for the VDP over the next three to five years? Working on what has been achieved in the past to also protect it in the future during the, the wine law renewing or changing that is happening right now. 
but also in terms of sustainability that I was mentioning. I think it's, of course, in times of climate change, it's one of our yeah, biggest tasks to work on how to protect our vineyards and, and also to be able to yeah, give them to the next generations. And also what we as an association can do to yeah, build a future of, of wine making, wine growing in, in Germany. So as we go to wrap up this episode, we always like to end on a personal note. And so we wanted to ask each of you, what was the most memorable wine you've drank over the last year and who did you drink it with? <laughs> I mean, it's, it might be kitsch or, you know, that word. But for me, it is a 93 as it is my birth vintage and I turned 30 this year. I drank it with family and friends and it was sweet German wine. It was an Auslese from Saar Hisling from 1993, a vintage that my grandmother told to be a great vintage, but I know that she's telling it about all the birth vintages from her great child, so our great children. But yeah, for me, it was special. It's, of course, the quality of wine, but also people you drink it with, for sure. It's the same with me. I had on, on Christmas Day, we had a 9037 Riesling from Von Buhl, and that, that was really... So I thought maybe it's uh, it's 30 or 40 years old, so we got it blind. And it was so fresh and nearly 100 years old. And I think this is family's all time the best place. I have four adult children now, and uh, it's fantastic to cook together and to to appreciate good wines. But that kind of an old wine, it's not so easy to get. So. It's again, it's a bit like curiosity for sure, but it was really delicious. So this was the most remarkable in the last year. <laughs> well, those sound like uh, two amazing experiences. I, I also love to have birthier wines and uh, it's always great to share them with family and friends. But we want to thank you both for joining and sharing so much information about VDP and how it operates and, and its impact that's had on the wines in Germany and, and abroad. For all of us, they get to drink them on a regular basis. But uh, thank you for your time and, and all your knowledge. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for your interest. And yes, have a glass and hoping to see you soon in Germany. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, Shame. cheers. Cheers.